turn God's word today to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. A welcome to those visiting with us. We are continuing to go through the gospel of Matthew together. Hear now the word of God. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it today to us by his Holy Spirit. Hundreds of years ago, a pastor once said, I preach as a dying man to dying men and women, boys and girls. He said, I preach as though never sure to preach again. It was Luther who said, I preach as though Christ died yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. There's an urgency In the moment, every worship gathering of God's people is not quite the same, is it? We come from different backgrounds with different trials, different visitors, different ones among us here today that weren't here last week. There's an urgency, a thus saith the Lord. We see that in the text today. Who would have thunk the forerunner of the Lord, the one promised to come for hundreds of years would have 18 months of public ministry. 
in God's timing, that was it for John the Baptist. He's in prison now at this point. Six months after this, he'll be beheaded. And loved ones, it reminds us, none of us knows how many days God has given us. As Ligon Duncan says, we don't know, John didn't know, but we do know how urgent our callings are. How short they may be, we don't know. When the work might be done for us, we don't know. But this doesn't keep us from the hope that we have in the gospel. It reminds us that, well, it is day we must work right now. And it reminds us that the Lord will build his church. God will take Moses from the people. He'll raise up Joshua. He'll take John the Baptist, and he'll send his son into the wilderness of Galilee. That's what's happening here. Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is all about this. This is the point over and over again. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Here there is narrative. Starting in Matthew 5, the Lord willing, we will see there is teaching on this. So where we will be for the next number of months even, loved ones, is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus himself is teaching us what life looks like as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Today we lead into that, the gospel that's preached. First, Jesus inaugurates the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It's about a year from last week. You think, that was a long week. (laughs) It's a year from when Jesus was tempted, where we were in Matthew 4 last week, to where we are now, In verse 12, Jesus withdraws to Galilee, not because he's scared, but because his time has not yet come. John's in prison. Jesus will go to Jerusalem to die on the cross, but before that, he will go to Galilee. He will go not to a big town like Jerusalem, think of Chicago today, but a small town on the outskirts of the land, on a lake. Capernaum, think Grand Marais today. That's where the center of his ministry and teaching will be. At Capernaum, he's going to talk about how he, John 6, is the bread of life come down from heaven. At Capernaum, he's going to be going into the synagogue. Can you believe that? Going to synagogue worship, and there's Jesus at Capernaum. At Capernaum, he ends up spending much of his ministry in what's called Galilee of the Gentiles, or the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is a phrase, you look back in 1 Kings, and you find that Solomon gave probably 20 cities in Galilee to King Hiram of Tyre. This is a place that Naphtali and Zebulun, some of the Old Testament tribes, settled in. And Jesus doesn't just go there because he loves the donuts in Grand Marais. Have you been there? World's best donuts. He's not going there as a tourist. He's going there to fulfill Capernaum, Isaiah chapter 9. Because 700 years before the prophet Isaiah, as you see kids in Matthew 4, 15 and 16, had said this would happen. When you read the prophets, it's very interesting. Isaiah and others speak of the future as if it's already happened. Do you notice that? The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
so certain is God's word to be fulfilled that they say, this will happen. Isaiah wouldn't see it. It would be 700 years before it happens, but it's as if it's already happened. Tremendous authority in the word of God. So this darkness in Isaiah's day was everywhere. You would go to the temple in Jerusalem in that day, you'd think, well, there's no darkness. The people were going through the motions, just showing up to worship, but their hearts were far from God. Not only that, but you had invaders from Syria and Assyria, especially in Zebulun and Naphtali, these northern tribes. Much war, exile. The curses of the Mosaic Covenant from Deuteronomy 30 were coming down. The people of God had turned away to idols. They weren't worshiping the Lord. And they were exiled. Darkness in the Bible, loved ones, symbolizes much more than just kids being dark at night. It symbolizes delusion, depravity, spiritual death, despair, gloom, It's an image of unbelief. Think of darkness so thick that you're choking. That's the image Isaiah gives. That you can't breathe. The world is a dark place. Our minds are dark. Sin affects all of us. The Bible talks about our foolish hearts being darkened. But Isaiah wasn't just speaking of darkness. He's saying there will come a day when a child will be born. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That's Isaiah 9. He will bring light to the dark world. Loved ones, Jesus is the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness doesn't understand it. The darkness hates it. But where Christ comes, in the place of the darkness of death, he brings the light of life. In the place of the darkness of ignorance in mind, he brings the light of knowledge. In the place of the darkness of sin, the light of salvation. Sweet grace. That while Satan has blinded the mind of the unbeliever from seeing the light of the glory of God, God who shone light into darkness, who spoke light, has shone in our hearts, 2 Corinthians, to give us the light of the knowledge, of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we want for you, Emmaus Road. For you to come Lord's Day after Lord's Day and to see Christ. To see his beauty, his grace, his love, his compassion. That's what we're about here as a church. Christ. We need him day by day. He is the light that we bring to a lost world. Not only does the unbeliever need the gospel, we need it every day. And what Jesus is doing here is fulfilling not only Isaiah, but the promises of Genesis 12. That in Abraham, one of his offspring will bless the nations. Here is Christ going to all these towns, bringing light to nations in darkness, to Gentiles. This is what the Reformation was about, loved ones. This energizes us. Do you remember the 1500s? The motto of Luther and the Reformers was, after darkness, 
light. The rediscovery of biblical truth in a time of spiritual darkness, we need that today. Today in a day in which we see the rise and triumph of the modern self, Carl Truman talks of that. We need the truth of the gospel in light of error and immorality. We need the hope of Jesus Christ, who we proclaim has done something that we cannot do. God transfers us by his spirit from the domain of what? Darkness. Into the kingdom of his beloved son. And Jesus shows up and he says, that's what I'm about. And as a church today, that's what we're about. Look what he does. He goes into Galilee teaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, and healing the sick. He goes there teaching, verse 23. He's showing those in Galilee and us today all of God's promises from the days of the Old Testament are yes and amen in Christ. He's teaching them. Can you imagine being there? You're not going to be dozing when Jesus is teaching, are you? Although when Paul was preaching, someone fell asleep. Remember that, kids? Eutyches, he fell out of the window. That was not good. Jesus is teaching about himself. He's preaching the gospel of what? The kingdom of where? Heaven. That means it doesn't come from earth. That means it's not a political kingdom. It comes down from heaven. What is that kingdom? It's the rule and reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of his people. It's seen in the word, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, the proper discipleship and discipline of the church. It means God's kingship, his rule, his sovereignty. It's a kingdom that brings us into the church, loved ones. It is a kingdom in which we now are brought from death to life. We're saved. But it's not only that, it is dealing with our body and soul. It's ultimately a kingdom that will be consummated in the new heavens and new earth. A renovated universe. That's when the kingdom finally will be all in all. God will be all in all. How's Jesus doing this? Matthew 7 says he's doing this with authority. So they're hearing this teaching and this preaching. They're saying this is not like anyone we have ever heard. We've heard people teach before, but not with this kind of authority. The crowd is astonished. And that's a blessing for us, loved ones, in terms of our life at this church, to have elders who still believe and have believed and defend and love the truth of the word of God. That's why preaching is such a primary emphasis here at this church. Whoever's preaching, the word of God is central. That's why teaching and catechism and bringing our children and us as adults, as disciples, under the word of God is so important here. That's why the elders talk to you about the love that we have to get together and to study the word because we are disciples being taught this same word that Jesus himself was teaching and preaching. But Jesus was also healing. Do you see that? Do you remember Tolkien the Lord of the Rings, maybe some of you have read the third book, The Return of the King. Crying and in pain, Mary, remember one of the hobbits, accompanied the procession carrying Theoden and Eowyn into the city. As Mary ascended the city roads, he ran into Pippin, another hobbit, 
who was startled and glad and noticed that Mary was stumbling badly. Mary's arm had gone numb after he had stabbed the Nazgul. Pippin escorted Mary where? To the houses of healing. At Gandalf's request, Gandalf the wizard, Aragorn entered the city in the guise of a ranger. The wounded, including Mary, Faramir, and Eowyn, grew steadily sicker from the poison of the enemy's weapons. One of the city's nurses recalls a legend of Gondor, which says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Only Aragorn could save those wounded by the enemy. The book goes on. All through the night, Aragorn heals the wounded of the city. Rumors fly throughout the city that the king of Gondor walks again, that he brings healing in his hands. Dear Christian, the king of the world brings healing in his hands. Jesus goes forth doing miracles, healing, and reversing the curse of the fall. Jesus goes forth in Galilee after battling Satan in the wilderness to remind us that all of these sicknesses and afflictions one day will be no more. Jesus, in his compassion, heals those with epilepsy, verse 24. That was considered the greatest disease of the mind in that day. No one could heal it. Jesus did. He heals those paralyzed. The greatest disease of the body in that day. No one could help someone paralyzed. Jesus does. He heals those possessed by demons. He casts out the demons. He shows his dominion, his power over Satan and sin and death. What he's doing there, loved ones, is giving you a picture of the consummated new heaven and new earth. He's reminding you that God redeems your whole person, body and soul. Your body will be raised from the dead one day, Christian. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And it reminds us as a church, this matters to us now. This is not just something we hope for. Meaning, God cares about your body in this life. Boys and girls, moms and dads, those in the prime of life, and those near the end of life. God cares about your body, and so do we. One thing about life at this church is that we minister to and care for people in their physical brokenness. And this is why, because Jesus cares for them. We pray for and we visit the shut-ins. We come and we bring them cards, as many of you do. You, you send them meals. You sit with them and just spend time with them. You cry with them. You open the word of God with them. You laugh with them. Bodies that are sick, that are afflicted, that are hurt, God cares about them. And so do we. That's one reason we have a ministry of mercy, a benevolence fund. We have money for that fund that we take in an offering once a month. You may, might hear about that. That goes to God's people who have physical and financial needs, both among us and among 
those in the, the broader denomination that we're in and areas that the deacons see, this is a, a need, and we want to help that person because Jesus had a ministry of word and deed. See that? It's not either or. So often churches make that mistake, either just word or just deed. No, it's both and. And God has raised up office bearers, elders who oversee the ministry of the word, deacons who oversee the ministry of mercy, deed. God cares about the whole person. So do we. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll have two deacons ordained and four deacons installed so that you can see this is a part of the heartbeat of life at this church because we want to do what Christ has called and equips us to do, to care for you, God's people. The news gets out. If Jesus is doing this, people are hearing about it. There's not Twitter, there's not YouTube, there's not any sort of anything like that, but word travels. They go, and they come, rather, to Jesus from Syria, from Jordan, from the Decapolis, it says. That's literally ten cities. From Damascus in the north to Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but Turkey in the south. They come from from Jerusalem, from Judea. They follow him, it says. And yet, among those who follow, a lot of them don't really follow. The Bible's full of that, isn't it? Dr. Godfrey calls Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 men, 20,000, probably men, women, and children, that miracle, remember? Dr. Godfrey calls that Jesus' church shrinkage seminar. Because by the end of John 6, there's just a remnant of those who are actually following Christ. In the Bible, many saw the miracles, many experienced them, maybe even were healed themselves, but did not continue, did not love Christ. Here's how Ligon Duncan puts it. He says, I had the privilege of ministering in a church where a man came that we'd never seen. He had a crisis. He showed up, and Ligon Duncan says, I was excited to see him, and one of the elders took me aside and said, very sadly, I've seen this man in four other crises. Something big happens. He has a crisis. He comes to the church for a while. The crisis is over. He disappears. There's an example of a person who wants God to meet their needs, but didn't want the sweet fellowship of Jesus. Duncan calls this a foxhole faith. Trusting the Lord when bullets are surrounding us, but when the crisis is over, we're back to ourselves. That's not saving faith in Christ. Saving faith, we see by the grace of God, looks like this. Second, Jesus calls disciples into his kingdom. If you look at Matthew 4, 18, you'll see an event that Luke 5 talks about even in more detail. So here's what's going on, kids. Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee. The crowds are around him. They're pressing him so much that he's literally kind of backed up to the water. He's wondering, where am I going to go? i got to back up. I can't back up anymore. He sees a boat, not randomly, but sovereignly. It's Simon Peter's boat. He gets into Peter's boat. He uses it as a pulpit 
with the Sea of Galilee as his sound system. He's teaching and preaching about the gospel of the kingdom. And it's there that the interaction happens with two sets of brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, and James and John. These disciples had known Jesus and had some sort of association with him for about a year at this point. So here in Matthew 4 and Luke 5, it's not that this is the first time they're seeing Jesus. They're fishermen. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't go to the halls of Jerusalem to gather the Pharisees as his disciples. He goes to fishermen. Very interesting as you see the Gospels go forth. These guys are working all night long. So this is an exhausting work. They are all probably in business together. Zebedee, John and James's dad, is the businessman who kind of is in charge of this. It's very successful. You read about that in the Gospels. So after all night, they're fishing, they're exhausted, they caught nothing. Now Jesus is teaching, and after he's done teaching, he says to them, okay guys, get back in the boat. And they're thinking, oh, this guy can preach, but I'm not going to listen to him as a fisherman. Is that what they're thinking? Get back in the boat. We're mending the nets. We've got to fix the net. We've got to rest, and we've got to go out and fish again tonight. We're not going to get back in the boat. Well, they get back in the boat. They listen. Jesus says, put it out into deep water. Middle of the day, the fish are going to be way deep. You're not going to catch them. Okay, we'll put it out. We throw the nets out. These are big nets. These are big boats. What happens, kids? Jesus doesn't get lucky. (laughs) No such thing as luck. Providence. Jesus, who is the Lord of all creation, including the fish, ordains that the fish enter the nets. So much fish that in Simon's boat, the net is breaking and the boat starts to go under. These boats might be 27 feet long. And they say, John, James, come on over. So This is dramatic. The other guys, John and James, they bring their boat over. And they fill up that net and that boat with fish. And Peter at that point, who has seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law, who has seen Jesus cast demons out, that same Peter breaks down. Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Peter rightly understood his sin, but he did not yet realize at that point that he should not have said to Jesus, get away from me. He should have said, Jesus, come to me. Dear Christian, we are all sinners with guilt, with issues. We need Jesus not to get away from us, but Jesus, have mercy upon us. Around you today are sinners. Up here is a sinner. We fall down and we say, God, I have nothing by which to commend myself to you. I have no reason by which in me you should save me. I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. We bow in humility. That's what we need today. Someone to deal with our guilt. Someone to deal with our sin. Someone to deal with our brokenness and sorrow and our search for satisfaction. That is found in Jesus and Christ alone. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You don't have to clean yourself up. 
You don't have to go get your life in order. He says, come. I will clean up your life. Come. The gospel call goes to all. Believe in Jesus and be saved. That's what a disciple does. Jesus brings a disciple to himself by his sovereign call. That's what he's doing here. He's sovereignly calling these disciples. One of them, of that four, remember Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Andrew, as you read the New Testament, is one of those guys who we read over and over again, brings people to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. See that? Matthew 4, 19. That's what Andrew's equipped to do. A year before this, Andrew brought Peter, his brother, to Jesus. Later on in the feeding of the 5,000, Andrew is the one who when Jesus wants to feed that crowd, brings the boy with the five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus. Andrew in John 12, just before Jesus' death, will bring a group of Greeks to meet Jesus. Loved ones, God equips Andrew to be the guy who always brings people to Jesus. And that's what evangelism is. It's going and getting the gospel out through preaching, through lovingly telling your neighbor the good news of what Christ has done for us. It's through the gospel being shared that God brings sinners into his church. The cost is major. Do you see that? They left everything. Doesn't mean fishing was bad. They went back to fish later in the gospels. But there's a decisive break with their old life. Meaning they are now in the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of the gospel of Jesus. And there's Zebedee, their father. Isn't that interesting? He's left fixing the nets alone. John's gone. James is gone. James, the first martyr who will die at the hands of another Herod. That guy. John, the writer of the gospel of John. Peter, you know him. And Andrew. Loved ones, the call to discipleship is a call of God's grace. It's not, I've got to do this. I've got to be better. I've got to try harder. No, it's receive what God has done. And now, in response, what does Jesus say? Repent. See that verse 17? A true disciple not only recognizes by the grace of God, the grace of Jesus, but repentance means turning away, not to try to prove to God how sorry you are. Repentance is not saying, okay, I want to earn your favor, God. That's the false idea of penance. We talked about that a few weeks ago, remember? John the Baptist? Repentance is not penance. Penance is the idea that you got this treasury of merit from the saints and from Peter and from Jesus, and you got to get that, and you got to do works to earn Jesus' favor. That is a lie. That's not the gospel. This is repentance, turning away from our self-reliance, turning away from the mess we have all made of our lives and relationships, and coming home to the Savior who calls you and who loves you. It's recognizing how merciful God is, he is a God who delights to forgive your sins in Jesus. It's casting yourself at the mercy of God. And it's a daily thing, isn't it? 
In repentance, we die every day. We die to self. We die to selfishness. We die to pride. We die to self-righteousness. We turn from sin where? To Jesus in faith. This is where the kingdom of God is found. Romans 14. Not in eating and drinking and earthly stuff, but in righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So we see the effects of the kingdom of God, don't we? New birth, entering the kingdom, the effects, the fruit of the kingdom. This is where we'll be, Lord willing, loved ones, in the months ahead, and I do mean months. We're going to go through the Beatitudes, Lord willing, and the Sermon on the Mount together. Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom, and this will be about life in the kingdom. You enter the kingdom through the new birth. We live in obedience to the king in faith and repentance. The reign of God has begun in your life if you're a believer. As we go through this, some might say, I'm not a believer. And God might bring them to faith in Christ, into his kingdom. We pray for that. Others might say, I, in the Sermon on the Mount, see stuff I don't really like. It might be like kids at home. Mom and dad are one in terms of their love for you, right? Their discipline, all those things. But sometimes, kids, you can say, well, I'm going to go to mom, and I'm going to try to get this from mom because I didn't get it from dad. And I'm going to try to pit them against each other. That can be a temptation as you read the Sermon on the Mount. You might think, well, I don't like what Jesus says here about sinful anger. I'm not an angry person. That, that, that's a message for someone over there. I, I think my cousin should hear this. I'm going to send that to him. That, that's not what we want. That's not what should happen to the preacher. The preacher needs to be convicted, right, first. But you might see something and think, well, maybe a friend can tell me something different. The Sermon on the Mount, loved ones, is gospel ethics. Hear that. This comes to you as you have all this in Christ. Now, by the Spirit of God working in you, faith, repentance, humility, grace, love, forgiveness, self-denial, that's what these citizens of God's kingdom live like and look like. To be a part of this kingdom, the kingdom of God, is to live in a way that our allegiance is to King Jesus. We are pilgrims. We are aliens. We are exiles in this world. Jesus does not want us to live according to the way of the world. Here's an illustration. I hope this helps. David Strain says this. Remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? You heard of that movie? They've got four brothers. The last of the sons is going to be saved as a group of rangers go and locate him and get him out of there, right? And as they locate him, the captain is dying. They give their life for him. And the captain says in desperation, earn it. We've done this for you. You better earn this. A crushing obligation. And yet some people approach the Christian life like that. Jesus did all this for me. Now I've got to earn it. 
and show him I really mean it and really do enough to show him that it was worth what he did for me. That's called living out of guilt. That's called a debtor's ethic. And that is a lie from Satan, as much of a lie as the temptations that he gave to Jesus that we saw last week. Jesus doesn't come to you and say in the Sermon on the Mount, look at what I've done. Now you better go earn it and make me not regret what I've done. Loved ones, instead of trying to pay Jesus back, which we can't, there's no such thing as a debtor's ethic, right? We can't do that. Understand this. He loved you. He gave himself freely for you. You never earned it. You couldn't earn it. So in light of what he's done for you, you will begin to find, I want to live for his glory, not trying to repay the debt, not out of guilt, but as a lover who delights to please the one who's loved me. Love to Christ, who first loved you, changes everything in your life. That's the Sermon on the Mount. So, dear Christian, rest in what Christ has done. By faith, his finished work, it's complete. The debt has been paid. The requirements of the law have been met. He took the wrath of God upon himself in your place. His blood was shed for your sins. He's loved you. He's given himself to you freely as a gift. He doesn't demand repayment. He doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, okay, earn it. He says, I love you so much that I simply long to have you as mine. And when you grasp that, you will want to love him back by the Spirit. And a life of love is a life that seeks to keep his commandments. As we go forth, loved ones, I want us to see, as Michael Horton says, the process of our growth as a church in terms of drama, doctrine, doxology, discipleship. The great truths of the Bible arise out of the dramatic narrative This is what we're just seeing. Jesus bringing fish from the water. That's an amazing miracle of God. These doctrines are not abstract formulas. They summarize what God does in creation, redemption, and consummation. The kingdom has come. They're not meant just to give you information. Coming to church is not just data dump. The Sermon on the Mount is not, I gotta pass a test. By the Spirit of God, it leads to doxology, to praise, to thanksgiving, to worship. And when we are filled with praise and energized by the Spirit of God, that leads to a certain kind of discipleship in the world, a new way of understanding God's grace to us in Jesus. This affects how we pray for big things, for the kingdom of God to come, for his will to be done, for God to beautify and sanctify his church, for Jesus to come quickly. It affects how we live as a church. The more darkness in the world today, the brighter the light of the gospel of Christ shines. It's Christ we're pointing to. We live now as an expression in the present as those in his kingdom, of what God will do in the future.
Emmaus Road, I'm excited to see how God will shape us to be more like Jesus in these months ahead. I'm excited to see that we would have more of an imprint of Christ and his kingdom among us, that his reign would be more evident among us, that it would affect how we talk to each other, how we pray for each other, how we study the word together, how we show hospitality, and how we live in fellowship as those who have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. God is taking care of us. God is protecting you from things that are destructive. God loves you. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is for our good, that we would be brought to repentance, that we would live in gratitude and obedience, that we would love the Lord, and that we would do so amidst affliction, amidst trial, trusting in Jesus who loved us, who died for us, who knows the future, who conquered sin and Satan and death, and who will return to consummate his kingdom, to bring you to himself in a glorious new heaven and new earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will root out every cause of sin and desire of sin in our hearts, that you will save your people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We know that this will ultimately happen, the rooting out of sin on the day of Jesus' return. But we pray now, Lord, give us grace to see the beauty of Jesus. Give us grace to love one another as you have first loved us. And we pray that this Sermon on the Mount would be used by you to make us more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.